certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Following the disappearance of Jane Rimmer in 1996, WA Police set up the Macro Task Force, led by an officer with experience and success in chasing killers, homicide detective Paul Ferguson. 20 years later, in December 2016, Bradley Robert Edwards was arrested and charged for the murders of Jane and Kira. Top cop at the time was WA Police Commissioner Carlo Callahan, and they both join us today for Claremont in Conversation, The Verdict. Paul and Carl, welcome to the podcast. Yes. Thank you. And hi to everyone listening, Natalie Bongiolo and Tim Clark, also in the studio today. Paul, can we start with you? You were the original head of Macro all those years ago. When you heard the guilty verdicts uh, from Justice Hall, what was your overwhelming emotion? Well, strangely enough, it was uh, a verdict I predicted, but uh, it was still quite emotional. Um, you know, when you know the uh, the families of the victims, and you, and you know them over an extended period of time, you can't help but feel sorry and and uh, feel as though you've possibly let them down to a degree. Um, so uh, elated for the Rimmer family and the Glennon family. But, um, yeah, I'm, I, I can't help but feel sorry for the Spears family. Yeah, I think, I think that's the thing um, with the verdict. On the one hand, it, there was absolute relief, but at the end of the day, there was just still so much sadness. Without a doubt, yes. I, I think the judge did a magnificent <coughs> job. He's summing up uh, in relation to the verdicts he came to. And, and uh, in... Um, in relation to Sarah, he actually said that the propensity evidence indicated that uh, Mr Edwards was responsible, but the forensic evidence didn't support it. So there's some consolation for the, for the uh, Spears family. Yeah, but it must still be so very difficult for them now, you know, a week on and having to, to handle that information. Oh, without a doubt, you know, you deal with any um, family that's lost a, a loved one and uh, when the uh, body of the loved one's not been found, there's always a hollow point there. Yeah. Carl, you announced to the WA public the breakthrough in the Claremont serial mm. killer case, and, you know, at the time it hit us like a bolt out of the blue. How did you feel hearing Edwards was guilty of the murders of Jane and Kira? Very much mixed emotions. I think, you know, listening to what Paul said, I did feel elated as well, um, but I also felt... Um, I, I guess sad for the fact that we couldn't bring all three of those things to a conclusion. Uh, and it had been a long time for me, obviously, as police commissioner, living with this inquiry. And oh, we got to the end of it. I, I really had some mixed emotions about it. Obviously glad that there has been a con- conviction, but um, sad that there are you know, some parts of it which seem to me to be left undone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was the overall um, emotion in court, I think, amongst... Everyone that had followed this case for so long, um, the very first headline that we put in the paper um, on the first um, day of the trial was uh, "Time for Answers" was on the on the the front of the paper, um, and that's what was the overwhelming feeling going in that we're finally going to get some answers, and we did almost get all the answers, but obviously there's there's two questions remaining um, in the in the, in the eyes of the law. Um, there's still a question as to who killed Sarah, and obviously, the overarching question is also is also where she is. Yeah, that's right. All right, can we go back to the '90s, Paul? At exactly what point did you become involved in this case? Well, in the in the mid '90s, I was the officer in charge of the homicide squad, uh, and uh, I think at that particular time, I was the um, acting inspector in charge of the division, which incorporated the uh, Missing Persons Bureau, the Crime Stoppers, Vice Squad and Homicide Squad. Um, when Sarah was reported missing, the, the procedure within police at that time was that um, um, unless a body was found, so if they had just reported missing, the Missing Persons Bureau conducted an inquiry uh, to ascertain whether there was any suspicious circumstances. Uh, and if there were suspicious circumstances identified, it got moved on uh, to the homicide squad or the local detectives or whatever the case may be. In relation to Sarah's uh, disappearance, um, uh, they reported to the Missing Persons Bureau, or they reported to police, Missing Persons had the file, 
and uh, because the Spears family was so concerned, they, through the West Australians, started a uh, campaign of uh, putting posters up looking for the family. That, in actual fact, it escalated the profile of her disappearance. Yeah. And uh, so um, the Homicide Squad looked at it probably two to three days earlier than what they normally would have looked at it. Wow. Um, and um, as I've said before, the Homicide Squad had the Homes Case Management System, which was a very, very complex uh, case management system. And it was the, I think they had two licences within WA Police at that time. And of course, Homicide Squad had one. Um, and... and it actually, was actually used Australia-wide by the Australian Federal Police for all their major investigations. So when uh, Sarah's disappearance was referred to the Homicide Squad, uh, the officer at that particular time, Mel Sherbel, uh, cranked up the home system and uh, started feeding all the information in there. So there was a number of things that actually occurred at the beginning that I think had a significant uh, impact on the, on the extent of the investigation over that 24-year period, 24 year period. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, we have talked about the fact that this this case is so extraordinary and, and what you're saying is even from the very beginning, it it was treated differently. From the very first moment when Sarah disappeared, it was it already had the, I don't know, the hallmarks of something unusual. Hindsight tells us that, but at that particular time, uh, when you have a, a homicide and you've got... Um, uh, the body of the person that uh, has been uh, murdered, uh, then from a case management perspective, you can write it out and you can move through pretty quickly. Uh, when you can't find the body of the deceased, uh, there is the expectation that it's going to be prolonged. Mm. And um, you hope it's not going to be, but in, in this case, it, it, it certainly turned out that way. So tell us then um, what the next step was when another young woman disappeared off the streets. In relation to, you've got to tell the story in, in, in context, in relation to Sarah, bearing in mind we're talking January when Sarah went missing and then in June when uh, uh, Jane went missing, so there was a period of nearly six months there. Um, but uh, not having found her body... Uh, we had to work around that to try and identify what happened. And when you actually look at a, a protracted investigation, a long-term investigation, this is perception that police solve the crimes. In actual fact, police don't solve the crimes. And, and the way I explain it is really, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And if you go back to some of that uh, footage when I spoke with the media back in those days, I, I spoke about, you know, we just collect the information, put it together, and the information then tells us the direction we need to go in. So uh, if, you look at, if you look at the crime scene, that's the picture that's on the front of the jigsaw puzzle box and that's where you want to get to. Yeah. And, and, and police officers then need to liaise with the, with the community to be able to get those bits and pieces that take us to that picture. And quite often when you look at a, um, a homicide in particular, and let's talk about it, it can be a rape, it can be a homicide, whatever the case may be, you might have two or three crime scenes. You've got the abduction site, you've got the transport site, and then you've got the dump site. And each one of those uh, crime scenes, you hope to extract information that gives you some indication as to one, what happened, yep. and two, who's the perpetrator. In relation to Sarah's um, uh, disappearance, we had none of those crime scenes. What we had was that we knew she'd rung for a taxi. There was no commotion. There was no abduction. There was nothing. Mm. So it was just a matter of collecting as much information as we could to, uh, to, to try and establish what could have happened. And that's when we uh, worked out in the early stages that DNA, and, and DNA was in its infancy. There was no national database and uh, a lot of things. But to the credit of the investigative team, they knew that it was a developing uh, forensic science that could take us... Uh, to a result in the future. So that's why we looked at um, collecting the, the DNA from all volunteers from emergency services, which included taxis, yep. ambulance officers, police officers, that sort of bits and pieces. So that in the event that we couldn't resolve in the short term, DNA would tell us who the offender was in the long term. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of just how vast that is, 
in terms of collecting all that information? I mean, it's a huge operation, right? Oh, huge, huge. And I suppose uh, an analogy you can use is the COVID-19 we have at the present time. You're robbing from Peter to pay Paul. Now, if you look at uh, police resources at the present time and, and the number of police officers involved at the airport in the, in the visitations to people and everything else, they've been taken from the front line to the, do this particular role. Back Go back to 1996 uh, when Sarah went missing, then Jane went missing. And of course, when Jane went missing, there was an ex- escalation of, of resource put into it because that's when it was actually formulated into a task force. Um, and uh, we, were, we were initially uh, grabbing detectives from everywhere. After a period of time, uh, the suburban detectives and the squads were saying, well, listen, we need some of our detectives back. Yeah, so wow. we were swapping detectives for uniform staff to, to, to make up the numbers. I mean, Carl, this is something that you could weigh into here. Obviously, you weren't a commissioner then, but you were a commissioner for 13 years. And how difficult is that when you have a case like this that requires extraordinary resources, but you're having to, as, as Paul said, rob Peter to pay Paul? It's always difficult because uh, when you get a major event, whether that's a major inquiry like Paul's talking about or something like the COVID-19, you've got to have this surge capacity to move people from one place to another. And it always has an impact somewhere else in the police. One of the things we've seen recently, say, with the COVID-19 is the police saying that crime's gone up in Northbridge because there's not as many police there. So you can see there is an impact uh, somewhere else because of COVID-19. Now, in the case of the Claremont inquiry, it did require a lot of resourcing. And so there would have been an impact somewhere else in the agency, whether that was another inquiry or another place, because you simply have to prioritise things. But it sort of is the nature of policing, really. Yeah. And um, in the context of the vast um, timeline of this story, from the January to the June is only six months. And as Paul said, it, it started off as a missing person case, very, very quickly became a major um, criminal investigation. But having looking back at old cuttings from, from back at the time um, in, in, in doing some research for the book, it was already a major investigation and a huge undertaking even before Jane went missing in the June. Um, I read something this morning. There were 20,000 posters, 2,000 uh, 2, posters, 20,000 flyers went out with Sarah's picture on. There were 50 buses that had her picture on around Perth. Mm. You couldn't move. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing Sarah's face in the cinema, in the, in the local deli, in the local shop. She was everywhere, and I suppose, Paul, that there's a, that's, a, that's a double-edged sword. It's amazing that there's this public sentiment for everyone trying to find Sarah, but with that comes all the information that's got to be collated. And if you miss something, then that could be uh, you know, a, real, um, a real misstep in, in the investigation. Yeah, you've, uh, that's correct. And um, uh, you know, initially, the homicide squad was collecting the data and putting it on the homes. But it, it, it actually, there was that much information, we then had to utilise uh, the Crime Stoppers mm. as the collection point of the information. And of course, the problem you then had is that Holmes was a standalone case management system. Uh, Crime Stoppers was a WA police uh, computer system. Then we had to find a process of linking Crime Stoppers into Holmes. Mm. And in the interim, people were manually taking the data off Crime Stoppers and feeding it into homes. So um, when you talk about this investigation, honestly, I don't think anyone has any concept of the the resources that were required at the early stage. Yeah, and there was talk about the amount of calls that were coming into Crime Stoppers was phenomenal. Mm. Let me jump in there and say that, uh, you know, back in the 1990s, Compared to what police have today, the IT systems were fairly primitive. And I know that, uh, you know, at least in the early 2000s, uh, police embarked on major upgrades to the IT services so that, they, so that software programs actually spoke to each other and were a lot more smart or intelligent. But back in 1999, 1998, it was very, very primitive indeed, and it required a lot of manual entry. Yeah, and then, um, as you say, Paul, I mean, when Jane went missing um, in the June, um, the, I mean, the word task force gets, you know, it, that was that was the label, but that was really then, I mean, it, it became something 
completely unprecedented, I suppose, in, in, in Perth policing history up to that point. Yeah, um, the day of the 9th of June, it was an ongoing investigation in relation to the disappearance of Sarah Spears. Overnight, on the 9th of June, uh, Jane was abducted and, and the, uh, the morning of the 10th, um, the then commissioner, Mr Falconer, said, listen, you know, this, this needs... This needs a, 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 and really, in all honesty, um, it was a task force beforehand. Mm. But mm. from a public's perspective, he escalated the terminology to show the uh, input that the WA police were putting into this investigation. Mm. So uh, internally, not a lot changed uh, from the, the 9th of June to the 10th of June. It must have been a call that you were dreading, Paul, when you got that call that another young woman had been missing, or weren't you thinking like that by that stage? Oh, we were very much aware of it. Uh, the um, the fact that we, we we didn't know how that Sarah had been abducted, the fact that there had been no commotion, uh, and the fact that her body hadn't been found was of major concern uh, through the the inquiry team and WA police. Um, and then, of course, the worst thing that uh, could have happened was another girl go missing from the same area. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, people, when uh, uh, Jane went missing, um, people started talking about serial killer and yes. bits and pieces. Um, I was doing the media side of it at that stage and oversighting the investigation. You have a responsibility to ensure that the community are aware of the dangers, yeah. uh, but you cannot. Uh, you need to be very mindful of the fact that you don't overemphasize um, the fact, you know, and I mean, we all know that uh, the definition of a serial killer is any person that uh, kills three or more persons with a gap in between. So uh, from my perspective and, and, and the investigative uh, perspective, we weren't conceding we had a serial killer at that stage. No, and of course, you know, like you said, you have to weigh up this idea of perhaps being alarmist with public safety, but in terms of the similarities of the disappearances of Sarah and Jane, what were you making of, of that? Oh, listen, even at that stage there, the Karakata uh, abduction and rape uh, was a, a significant part of the investigation as well. So how much were you looking into the Karakata rape and how that maybe was connected to these two disappearances? Um, like any investigation, it's, it's an additional file that you, um, you bring into the team uh, but with uh, door knocks and with collection of DNA and everything else, the resources, and I won't say we're limited, they weren't. We, we were very, very fortunate to have a lot of resources to assist us. You know, when we had to do EMU picks up at uh, Blackball Reach and things like that, um, the commissioner at the time um, shut the, the academy down and gave us the recruits out of the academy and those sort of bits and pieces. So, um, you know, there, there was a lot of resources put into it. But the fact is that um, it was another file that sat alongside of the disappearance of Sarah and then the disappearance of Jane um, and we were just reviewing the additional or the information that we'd got from Karakata. Um, it was one of those things that you just did what you did uh, with what you had. Yeah. Was there ever, uh, you know, prior to, to the discovery of Jane's body 55 days later, was there any part of you that thought one of these women could turn up or did you really fear the worst? Oh, no. The two girls were dead. You knew? Yes. Yep. And, and that was, I mean, you've said it to me before, Paul, that was based on victimology. A lot of it was looking at the girls themselves, their backgrounds, their movements prior to their disappearances, their family backgrounds, all that type of thing that you knew this this wasn't, they weren't, two young women that would just disappear like that of their own volition you know just for a you know just to go on a jolly somewhere no tim uh, you know and as i said to you before yes um criminology focuses on the on the offender um his character his behavior his personality and that sort of bits and pieces victimology was in its relatively early stages, we certainly um, took it uh, in our investigations and, and victimology is really just assessing the risk factors within the, within the victim. And if you can uh, establish the risk factors of the victim, and if they're very low risk factors, then the actions of the offender 
particularly when you can't find the body and there was no commotion, the actions of the offender is alarming because he's actually fact got that person into the car without causing a commotion. If your risk factors of the victim are very high uh, and um, then and then they're prone to hitchhike and that sort of bits and pieces, the the criminology side of things is not necessarily as, uh, as as smart as as what one would be if the risk factors were low. And I'm just not sure how you even how do you even reconcile that with the families that you're dealing with. You're saying you're knowing there's no hope. They're holding out hope. Um, well, as long as the the families are kept, and I mean, we in, even back in 1996 uh, that we had a victim support officer, and, and Vicky Smith uh, was the victim support officer uh, with those two families, and her job, apart from being uh, within the team, uh, which was vital because she was the one that was assessing uh, the risk factors of the victims, uh, so she was giving that to us, but also at the same time. Her role was to give back to the families where we were going and what we were doing. Uh, and, of course, Don and, and Carol, um, they, they were devastated, totally devastated. And, of course, with the Rimmer family when Jane went missing uh, because they were... If I can go back to... Um, once upon a time, mm. once upon a time, and, and uh, police... Paul Ferguson is, is equally responsible for this as well, took it upon themselves to protect the victims. Um, and um, and so something would happen, and I'll go back to the Boonies one, you know, things would happen to victims, and um, the police didn't tell the families the whole story because they felt, felt as though they were looking after the families. There was that terrible uh, homicide in, in Eastern States with Anita Cobby, uh, and as a result of uh, what happened to Anita, they started the Victim Support Unit, uh, which then came across the Western Australia. And I've got to be honest, it was like uh, turning a light on. Mm-hmm. And, and when you talk about peaks and troughs with, with victims, the families of victims, uh, you, uh, the, 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 their, their loved one is killed, they go down. After a period of time, when it, you, you're keeping informed of what's going on, they start to get hope. And then you have to release something further that uh, comes out. It goes down again. Uh, you know, I, 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 I can go back to the boonies and there was something that occurred in that particular file that I'll, I'll take to my grave. It was a huge mistake that I made because we retained something that when they feel, felt as though they were going to plead guilty, I had to let the, the family know that. And that was nine months after, eight months after. And... Uh, it was a, a huge mistake on, on our part. And that balance between keeping the families informed but um, having their emotions and sensitivities at the front of your mind was evident right up until the middle of the trial when yeah. there was there was evidence, well, obviously all our regular listeners will know all the sensitive material, the, um, the autopsy photos, the crime scene um, videos, all that type of stuff wasn't shown in court, um, so only the lawyers and the judge and Mr. Edwards could could see it. Um, and my understanding is that was a that, that that was after input from the, from the families of the victims that they said that that doesn't need to be shown. We don't want to sh- see that personally, but we don't want others to see it as well. There were other uh, sort of more intimate um, areas of the post mortem reports that were um, uh, suppressed. Um, by the judge again after sort of entreaties um, from the families and um, so the, the 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 moral dilemma that Paul was having all those years ago w- w- yeah. w- fell into Justice Hall's lap in 2020 and he had to balance between the public's right to know and in public interest in inverted commas and what was the right thing to do um, for the um, for the trial for the families for the victims um, and for everyone involved um, and we've said it before, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I think he struck exactly the right balance um, because I've seen, as a court reporter, experienced court reporter, probably not as um, graphic as, as Paul and Carl have, but I've had my fair share, and it, do, it never leaves you, doesn't leave you, um, and you don't particularly want to, we certainly don't want to see it, but some part of you thinks, well, it's part of my job to be, have to see that, to pay witness to it. 
Um, so, you know, it wasn't a, a, a thing that we, any of us were looking forward to in the trial. And then when Justice Hall made that decision, <clears throat> um, I, I think he, I, th- I think he got it spot on. Even though they needed to go to Bunnings to get the quick screens to to make it sort of make it so that was a, that was a little bit of a scramble. But um, I think that they got there in the end, and um, and justice was done and seemed to be done, but um, but not at the expense of of the, the the families that were were also watching. Yeah. And, and Paul, you're making these very, very difficult decisions and dealing with something that most people will never, ever face in their lifetimes. What about the personal toll at the time on you? Um, I, I, I'm like a lot of policemen. I, I had some great mentors um, and I learned very early in my career that I needed to live two lives. When I was at work, I was a policeman. When I went home... I was a father, I was a husband. Um, and, and it's not just a light switch. I mean, it's a matter of, of when you're at work, you, you deal with your colleagues, you deal with your colleagues and, uh, and you deal with the victims and, and those sort of bits and pieces. So I kept some form of sanity uh, by weekends and when I went home and, and was just Paul Ferguson. Yeah. If the phone rang and, like, uh, it was... Um, Jane's uh, circumstances, the phone rang on a Sunday afternoon and I was told that they'd found a body down Wellard uh, and they suspected it might have been Jane. You got dressed and you turned your, your police uh, brain on and, um, and you went down and you did the job. But I never took my work home and discussed it at home. So, uh, and as I've said to, uh, to Tim and others, um, at the time... I managed it very, very well because you always knew you're working for the victims, whether they be the deceased or whether it be the family of the victims. But the unfortunate part about it in the major crime area is you know that once you resolve that one, there's going to be another one. So, so you don't dwell on what you see and, and what you do because you've got to move on to the next one and it's a, it's a fresh scene and it's, it's all those sort of bits and pieces. The problem you have is when you retire and then people want to come and talk to you about those things, you know you're not going to have another one to go to. So you pull out from the bottom drawer those, those horrendous things that you've seen and, mm. and, and, um, and you dwell on them for a couple more days than you would when you were working. Because you, you're not going to the next one. Spot on. And Carl, yeah, I mean, you were in charge of a whole, a whole force. Um, what, what was your feelings about... Um, being able to strike the balance between, you know, telling your guys, um, you know, to, to look after themselves while obviously them having to um, do and, and, and see things that that not no sort of ordinary people in their, in their working lives don't. Well, you know, it's been a huge challenge for police generally. I think Paul's way of looking at things is, a, is an excellent way of dealing with it. And I had pretty much the same view in in my approach to policing but of course not all police officers can do that and many of them suffer on the job and they do uh, suffer post-traumatic stress after single or just a couple of events and they're not able to always continue year after year doing this sort of work and uh, a lot of thinking and effort has gone into how we mitigate that the impact of seeing these terrible things on a day-to-day basis the impact on policing and so it's it's a bit it's a bit of a horse for a course type of thing because different people are affected in different ways. Paul, you mentioned about getting that phone call and the discovery of Jane's body. How did that change the investigation? Well, of course, it, it, it created a lot more hope. Um, and I think I've spoken before about crime scenes. You know, you, you have the disappearance, you have the transport, and you have the, the finding of the body. So every time that you get, you find a crime scene, there's hope there that you're going to extract something from that crime scene that's going to give you um, a lead to who the offender is. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, we went down there and, and the forensic people. By that stage, um, you know, I can remember early in my career that, you know, where there was a homicide, um, the detectives walked through the crime scene and all those sort of bits and pieces. We'd moved on from that time. And uh, so the scene was actually contained and the forensic people went in. And there was a lot of hope that uh, the forensic people would uh, find something which would give us an indication as to uh, who the offender was. Uh, bearing in mind, um, that then generated a new flurry of information coming through 
that um, into the uh, into the inquiry team as well. Yeah, I imagine um, it, it is a really difficult situation to manage because on the one hand you're having to deliver this really horrific news to a family, but on the other hand it's getting you a step closer to finding maybe who did it. Yes, um, you know, with with Sarah's disappearance, um, the family just wanted the body back. They wanted to know who did it, but they wanted the body back. Uh, When um, Jane went missing and then her body was located, uh, there was some relief for the family that they had actually located, uh, her body had been located. From a policing aspect, we had a different focus, of course, Mm. but from a victim's perspective, they they had their daughter back. And are you, you know, you pacing the corridors of the forensic departments, waiting for, you know, anything they can give you? Oh, <laughs> you're talking of, of, you know, some days when we're doing emu picks and we're doing bits and pieces, some days we had 200 people working. Yeah. So, you know, you, you had all these lines of inquiry. We got to a stage where, and, and Carl did uh, know this as well, we got to a stage where um, the detectives wanted their detectives back out in the suburbs and bits and pieces. So we then had a number of detectives and uniform staff. And um, and the inquiry team came up with a concept of saying, well, listen, let's get some recruits in here. And when I say recruits, I'm talking police officers that have been through the county but within their first two years in the police force. Because um, when you've been in the police force for any length of time, you get a mentality uh, of... of Trying to read the play of the offender, or trying to read the play of the offender of the uh, of the victim, and that sort of bits and pieces. So uh, what we did was we brought in a number of recruits, and you had a, a, a detective and a recruit, and we'd have a briefing in the morning, and we'd have a briefing in the afternoon, uh, or in the evening, and uh, so everyone had their their action files, and you bring these these I call them kids, um, bring them into the team, and there was a detective and a and a recruit. And for the first three or four days, the detectives say, right, today we've got uh, a file here to go and look at uh, Bill Smith. Uh, Bill Smith's background, he's da-da-da-da-da-da. And then that evening, you'd say, yeah, we interviewed Bill Smith today and on this date uh, he was doing such and such, so he's out of the picture. And everyone went around the circle, one of the two teams would go around the circle, so that everyone was briefed on what everyone else was doing. Mm. And then after, a, I don't know, few days or whatever, we then said to these recruits, "Rightio, you now give the briefing today. And of course, they, 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 because what we wanted was for them to give us some information, some insight as to what non-police people think. Right. And, and they're the sort of strategies that as a major investigation, we, we looked at because we were all mindset. These kids that, that hadn't been coppers for two years hadn't been mindset. So, you know, you go out and you go to a nightclub and you, you drink and you, you think things different to what a responsible or, or, or a, a seasoned copper thinks. So there was a lot, of, a lot of thought went into the investigation. Wow, and I find it extraordinary because on the flip side of that, what we know is that the information was so tightly contained. Um, very little information came out that you didn't want to come out and to have these vast resources... Yeah. Yet nothing was being leaked. Oh, listen, I've said before, you know, this team, the macro team, consisted of 24 years and and every person that went into it and came out of it gave their heart and soul to it. So I, 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 I just think I... It was a shit of a file. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I was fortunate. <laughs> Absolutely. Um so we, uh, one of the questions we have had a lot of from people listening to the podcast is the search areas and people have asked, you know, where else were police searching at the time because they weren't aware, you know, so we know that, you know, Jane's body was found in Wellard. Was there a vast search in that area for Sarah's body? There, there was a number of search places. Uh, I talked about the emu picks. Uh, there was uh, down Blackball Reach there. There was Midland. There was uh, Serpentine. There was, you know, and I think Chris uh, Dawson raised it uh, a few weeks ago there that, um, um, that, that a lot of things happen and, and people ring up and say, oh, you should have a look at Bill Smith because da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. 
soon as a investigator and a senior person within the investigative team gets a mindset, you, you've got a problem. You've got to have an open mind. And, um, and when you've got the resources to be able to say, well, listen, it's unlikely that Paul Ferguson is the offender, but go and check it out. Mm. And that's the whole idea of the actions. Yeah, you, you, it goes down into an action, it gets allocated to a team, and our team might be like collecting the DNA. That was a team of 40 people, 30 people uh, from the taxi drivers. But then again, it might be just two people. Right, go away and check out this Paul Ferguson, see where he was, uh, what's he like, uh, that sort of bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have the opportunity, or if you do, if you do start isolating particular ones because you don't think it fits in, you become a danger to the inquiry. Carl, during your time as the Commissioner, how much detail was being provided to you in terms of, yeah, we've, we've gone and questioned X amount of people that have, um, you know, been pointed out to us or we're now searching this area or we've been told to go and search out at Carragullen or whatever it mm. may be? Well, I've been asked this question a lot of times. Um, I've always taken the view that it's not the Commissioner's role to be briefed on the e- exact details of any inquiry. Uh, I know this was a big inquiry, but people like Paul Ferguson are experts in that area. They're well-trained um, and probably definitely a lot better trained than I am in that. And so you know, I took the view that the, the team were making the decisions and they would do what was necessary to bring this to a conclusion. Now, there was a obviously a line of management all the way up to the commissioner's office about how uh, reporting was made. But most of the reporting that would come to me was at the highest level. So the details of what was being searched, who was being interviewed, you know, what detectives were actually doing was a little bit lower down the organisation because, quite frankly, they are the people with the expertise to carry this off. Yeah. So, Paul, in March 1997... Kira Glennon uh, disappears from Claremont. Can you tell us about uh, when you got that phone call? Um, no. No, I can tell you about uh, Jane. I, I'm sorry. I, I By then, I've got to be honest with you, by then, um, one day rolled into the next day uh, and it was the worst. the worst thing you wanted to happen but I've got to be honest that, that my feelings were that we had a serial killer and it was inevitable. Oh. And, uh, and um, um, you know, we had, we had to try and find this person. And, I mean, is it a, is it a blur? Do you, did you, do you, have you blocked it out, that whole period there? Oh, no, no, no. You don't block it out. It, um, um, it, it, it's... It's an ongoing investigation, and I mean, what I did three years there, um, and and of those three years, I mean, I can, for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, I can remember Sarah's disappearance. Yep. I can remember, and the reason I remember uh, uh, Jane's is on the night she was my wife's birthday. Oh gosh! So um, you know, and then that sort of is the is the prompt to her disappearance uh, with Kira. Um, of course, I remember her. Being uh, going missing, I remember the uh, the um, footage, uh, all of those sort of bits and pieces. Um, but to say, what was I doing? No. What was I thinking at that time? Sorry, I don't. Yeah, obviously though, again things went into overdrive, and it was only a few weeks later that Kira's body was yep. discovered. Yep, that's correct. Uh, yeah, her her, her uh, body was found up at Pippinning Road, Pippinning Road, up in uh, near Yanship there. Um, and when you look at the, um, from an investigative point of view, and I, it, um, when, if you look at a street directory, mm. and I don't know whether everybody would look at a street directory, we certainly do. I certainly have. I've, Kate yeah. may not have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you look at what happened with uh, Jane, it was Stirling Highway up to the freeway, turn right, go right to the end of the freeway, you got to Thomas Road, you turn right, first left, and then you got down into Wellard, and her body was dumped there. Her body was found. What happened then with Kira? If you get the street drink out, up Stirling Highway, but instead of going right, you go left. To the end of the freeway, turn right, Wanneroo Road, left, out towards 
at Topopinin Road, which was only a relatively short distance, and her body was dumped there. So when you actually do a little bit of homework on serial killers, they're, they're, they're a creature of habit. They're comfortable with where they dump the, the dump sites or whatever. So if you look at what happened in that one, that's when we knew we had a huge problem because from where I sit, all he did was reverse the dump, dumping ground. He's just gone north rather than rather than south, yes. and yeah. and uh, re- even reporting at the time, um, pretty much equidistant, forty kilometres north and south, yep. just off off a main semi-rural road, yeah. you know, but not too far off. Um, and then, obviously, you knew at the time, Paul. We didn't, or the, the public didn't. The, there was other striking similarities um, with the with the wounds and obviously the vegetation that were placed on top of both bodies that had been taken locally, very locally, i.e. just walked off a few paces, ripped it off and then put it on. Um, and uh, yeah, but it's really interesting you say, Paul, that you were sort of horribly anticipating that call because I think that was also the feeling in the in the wider community as well, particularly after Jane's body was found. Um the, the the media exposure obviously we've discussed it went into absolute overdrive um um at, at the time that jane was found um but at that time obviously kira wasn't in the country she was overseas right. still still um still doing what so many young west australians do um um finding her feet and and finding her place in the world by going out into the world and looking looking at it and exploring it um so she wasn't actually immersed in the whole fear and dread I suppose in the city um, and then she'd only arrived back in Perth just a, just a week or so before before she was taken yes yeah and and when you you know I did a little bit of research um, on the American serial killers and bearing in mind they only write on the major ones and the consistency between the victims Um from an investigative point of view, I mean, you, you, you've got to learn from what you hear and what you read and so on and so forth. So when I talk about flipping the page from left to right, in America, where you've got the, the uh, serial killers can kill quite a number of people, that that is the indicators that, that that's what they can do. Um, uh, that's from my perspective as an investigator, it was consistent with, with the readings I'd done. And this is a somewhat loaded question, but do you have a theory if you were looking at this, um, you know, almost stepping outside and looking back in as where you would think Sarah would be? Sarah, I would suspect would be down the Wellard area. Uh, Once again, from the homework, from the reading I've done um, with serial killers, if they're comfortable in in their, what they're doing, they stick to it. Um, they'll only change when something occurs, a body's been found or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Can you talk to us about the Telstra connection? Uh, you were you were putting the Karakata rape, you were looking at that in this case. Uh, we had heard from the security guard who had seen a Telstra van um, driving past um, Hollywood Hospital that night. Uh, we obviously, in the trial, heard from the Telstra Living Witnesses. What kind of um, links were being made to Telstra? The, the main focus back in 96, 97 were, and, and bearing in mind with Sarah's disappearance, there was no commotion. And with James uh, Jane's disappearance was no commotion. So once again, you go back to the victimology and Sarah had rung for a taxi. So um, the fact that we'd taken the DNA from people working that night, Telstra was one of those ones that, um, of course, was an organisation and, and it had uh, access, uh, had vehicles and bits and pieces. But I think in, in from my perspective and bearing in mind I... I also oversighted the homicide squad and the others, so I wasn't hands-on in the investigation, talking to people and that sort of stuff. Um, I think the focus of that early stage was to try and identify um, how the girls were abducted or how they got in the car, taking into consideration Sarah didn't hitchhike. Yeah. You got a sister to run her there, she was going to get a taxi to go home, and that was her normal pattern. She didn't hitchhike. 
Um, uh, we looked at um, um, people because in, in, in those days, I don't know whether you probably still can these days, but you could go to any sign-writing organisation and get a magnetised sign made up Fred's real estate or, or whatever. So, uh, you know, it was possible. Did someone get a taxi sign made up, put on the side of the car to get uh, Sarah to, to get in the car, thinking that she was getting into a taxi? You know, there was a lot of lines of inquiry made, yeah. but but I'm, I'm really not conversant enough to be able to get into the focus that was on Telstra at that time. Yeah. I mean, and I guess the taxis, you know, uh, it did seem a very logical line of inquiry. Oh, certainly for Sarah it was, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, at the time, um, David Burney, who we've spoken about in this podcast, uh, is a serial killer that you helped put behind bars. You got a phone call from him. That's correct, yes. What was that about? Well, uh, David was charged in 1986. Uh, and 1986, um, we were going through a, a stay... Well, a stage of uh, investigations that, and bearing in mind, I didn't join the uh, CIB until 76. I'd only been in the CIB 10 years. Um, where um, you got a, an offence report, you did the investigation, you charged the offender and you moved on to the next one. Um, by 1986, when we got David, um, it was one of those investigations where um, there was a, a number of young ladies going missing at that particular time and, and uh, uh, there was talk in the media about a serial killer. Um, I got called in on a Sunday to um, look at the disappearance of Denise Brown uh, and I made general inquiries with the mother and the MTT and, or the, the bus service. Um, and, and as a result of what the mother told me, certain things stuck in my brain. Uh, and on the Monday morning, uh, I was down at Fremantle at that time, uh, we called a squad meeting and uh, I briefed everyone on the file that I'd been called in on. Um, and then on the Wednesday, that's when Katie got away from the Burnies uh, and uh, some of the things that she was told certainly linked into the disappearance of Denise Brown. So um, we arrested Cathy and David brought them in and we spent the day talking to those two. Uh, Chris Cassidy and Bob Hersey had um, uh, Kathy Burney and uh, myself and Vince Cadditch had David Burney. And the first and foremost was to try and establish whether there was a crime in relation to Katie. Uh, and you had Kathy saying we didn't, didn't have a woman at a house that night. We had David saying yes, which we we picked up this lady and she wanted to buy some drugs and we took her back to my place. So we knew we were on a, uh, on a, a pretty strong case to begin with. So it was a matter of trying to get David to admit that he'd committed a crime with Kate. Once uh, we'd established that and got that sorted, uh, I then moved on to Denise Brown knowing what I knew about Denise. Now, that would have been 10 o'clock, I suppose. He admitted to the crimes at 6 o'clock that night. Um, so you can imagine we had a fair time together. And at the end of that, that when he admitted to the uh, crimes, uh, it was a matter of put him in the car. At that stage, he had just admitted to killing four girls. Yeah. Uh, what we wanted was the body of one of those four girls, so we put him in a car and, and got him to take us to the, the body. of uh, Any one of the girls was going to suit us to begin with, but he could take us the four of them. Once we got that, we, we had the evidence that we needed that he'd killed four girls. So um, he was then charged for the four murders. You remember what the media was like in bits and pieces. The uh, senior staff of the police service were notified. Um, being a relatively junior detective uh, and um, being down at Fremantle, we just carried on with the next file, put the brief together in relation to David and move on to the next file. If I have a regret, the regret was that we as a service never debriefed him as to why he did what he did and, and, and the thought processes and all those sort of bits and pieces. Um, anyway, when we move on 10 years um, and I'm doing the uh, working with the macro task force, I got a phone call from David saying, Paul, 
no one ever debriefed me in relation to uh, why, I, why I did what I did. If you want to come down and have a talk, we, we can have a talk. Well, Carl will concur with me that you, as a police officer, you never, you never let an opportunity like that go by. Uh, and uh, so I went down and spoke to David and, and um, gave him broad parameters and then he just gave me what his views were, we went back, briefed the team on that. Um, that's, that's as much as we could do. Can you tell us some of the things he told you? Oh, um, he just talked about, you know, where him and uh, Cathy, uh, what they wanted and how they were going to go about it. Uh, Stirling Highway, Canning Highway, that they picked that as a safe um, um, collection area uh, because there was a lot of people that hitchhiked or whatever the case may be. And it comes back to, I mean, the fact that you've got a male and a female in the car uh, and a woman's run out of petrol would give you a lift to a service station. It was easy pickings for them. Uh, so from an investigator point of view, I mean, anything I'm told that assists in relation to the f- type of work we did was a bonus. So it was really just one of those things. Yeah. And and looking back on it, uh, you know, in hindsight, was his information, I guess, relatively accurate? In relation to him, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, in relation to anything else, well, it really is just the thoughts of a of a confirmed serial killer. Yeah, yeah. And now, how much longer did you stay at Macro? You or did you leave Macro entirely after that? Yes. Uh, what happened uh, was, and, and uh, there was a bit, there was a bit of uh, conjecture as to whether uh, Dave Cape or I uh, fell out. No, that's absolutely wrong. What happened was in about November. 98, 97, yep. um, they called for um, uh, application for promotion. Um, I put an application in, Dave put an application in, Dave was promoted and I wasn't. So it was impracticable from an uh, organisational perspective to have a confirmed commission officer reporting to a, an acting commission officer. So I went back and, and at that stage um, the commissioner then said, Rightio, the macro task force comes out of the homicide area and becomes a separate unit that's answerable to the Deputy Commissioner. Paul, you go back to running your division and the homicide squad and we got on well. Yeah, right. And did you did you keep a close eye on what was going on and was there anything in the investigation that you thought, oh, you know, I don't know that I'd go down that path. You know, there was all sorts of things. You know, there was profiling and questionnaires that, you know, raised controversy. Were you keeping a close eye on it and, and had your own thoughts on these things? Oh, no, I had a... Uh, yeah, it, when I left there, uh, Sarah Lee Davies had gone missing up in Broome uh, so I went up to Broome and did a review of that file. Uh, then when I came back, there were several other files. Uh, like everyone else, I, I was aware of some things that were occurring. I, as I said previously, I, I, I did not approve of people interfering with investigations that uh, the homicide squad that I was running were conducting and they were outside of the homicide squad. So consequently, I never made any inquiries as to what was happening in relation to the macro task force because that was outside of the homicide area. Carl, in 2004, you were appointed uh, WA Police Commissioner and in 2004, there was consideration of disbanding macro, wasn't there? What was the thinking behind that? I don't think it was so much disbanding macro, it was more about the resources that were going into macro and what progress was being made. So there was a bit of thinking about uh, what level of resources we would need to keep, uh, I guess, at this particular inquiry, given the progress that had been made over the years before I became police commissioner. Yeah. And that must have been, uh, as you mentioned before, Carl, um, resources are not infinite particularly in the police force and and so that must have been somewhat of a of a, of a juggling act sort of uh, from a policing point of view but also emotionally knowing that this 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 was one of the major investigations people still asking questions about it but you also had to be sensible and 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 move your your pieces on the on the board um where they needed to be yeah, it's always a challenge and uh, I guess that's why Macro has had so many reviews because you do need information about what progress is being made, what the likelihood is of resolution, 
you know, what sort of developments there have been uh, in terms of uh, forensic technology, etc. And all of those things go into the mix about making a decision uh, about whether, you know, or, or how many resources you put into any particular operation. Yeah. Uh, Carl, in 2008, um, when police released this vision of Jane Rimmer at the Conti, uh, which the public had never seen before, did you know at the time that, that this CCTV had been tucked away and hadn't uh, been released? No. No, look, I mean, as I said to you before, uh, the amount of information I got about the detail of the investigation was 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 quite low. I mean, what I really needed to know was that the investigation was progressing uh, I needed to have information about what sort of resources needed to go into it, and I had to make a decision about supporting the resources, uh, you know, and the allocation of police officers to that particular inquiry. The actual detail of what you know existed, <clears throat> excuse me, what existed, and you know what was there, I didn't have available to me. I did have available, but it wasn't reported to me because it wasn't necessary at the time. Yeah, if I, if I could just make a comment in relation to that, from, a, from an investigative point of view, you have to be very, very careful what you release to the media, to the public, uh, because, and if I can use an example as a car, you know, a, a white Commodore was seen in the proximity of, and the next day, no, it was a green uh, uh, Toyota, and then, no, it was a, a white Getz. When you start changing what you're asking the community to give you information about, you lose credibility. Mm. Now, in relation to that footage of Jane, um, and, and you made the comment there that it had been tucked away, certainly had not been tucked away. What happened was that the, the footage, and you've seen the footage, yeah. very, very grainy, was extremely grainy. Now, to put that on the TV at that particular time, we, as an investigative team, made a conscious decision that it was very dangerous because someone could just make a nomination and you couldn't exclude or run with it because it was that grainy. So we made a decision to make inquiries as to whether we can get it uh, more clear. In actual fact, that footy was sent to NASA in, in mm. the United States and uh, they had it for an extended period of time. In actual fact, it didn't come back until after uh, I'd left the macro task force. But what we also did... We did a, um, a call out of anyone that was near the Conti Hotel on the night of Jane's disappearance to please come forward. And we started to put a roadmap together of all these people. And each one of those persons was showing that, um, that footage to see whether they could identify or recall all that. So there was a fair bit of work done on that, on that uh, footage uh, internally without releasing it to the media. When we got it back, and I'm led to believe that when it came back, NASA couldn't uh, um, uh, clear it much more than what it was already done. Yeah. So, uh, but but to say that it was not acted upon is incorrect. No. So it wasn't it wasn't hidden from the public. It was no. potentially detrimental it, to, to put the it investigation. Out there. Yes. Yeah. Well, as Paul says, I, I think sort of dozens of people had seen it, and not just police officers. Um, a, a, Luke Morfess, who was the crime um, chief crime reporter for the West Australian at the time, told me an anecdote of uh, he'd actually, when he was in um, uh, in the sort of police office or the office where Macro was based for doing something else, he just happened to walk past where the Macro officers and glanced through. And you'll probably correct me if I'm wrong here, Paul, but he said he'd saw seen a map and um, that was on of. Claremont and the surrounding areas on that wall and every single person that had been traced and tracked to where they were that night was on that map and and you know different colours for whether they were a taxi driver or a patron or a, what they were working on. So you can imagine imagine the amount of work that had gone in to try and trace every single person in that s small area but very very busy area on those nights and then trace them to where they were and then uh, you know rule them out of the inquiry first, but then dot, dot them on a map. So they, they had a, a still picture, if you like, of everyone that was in Claremont on, the, on those nights in, in question. Um, and as Paul's just revealed there, and then everyone on the relevant night of Jane's disappearance was shown the footage as well. Um, and, we've, and everyone has seen it now, and, look, and we saw it in court, and it's still, it's still not great no. um even all those years later and all the efforts that went into now there was a bit of a it, it came out in 2008 via um 
a pay TV station who were doing a special on Claremont. Um, one of the detectives that was involved in the investigation for a long time was featured in that, as was you know family members. And then that footage was was released through that. There was a little bit of, shall I say, media egos maybe pricked because it had gone to one outlet when it hadn't gone to another. But I, I think there was also a, a little bit of uh, sort of fear commentary about why it had taken so long. But um, we've just had the man, the, the very horse from the very horse's <laughs> mouth to tell us why. And I think, that, I mean, from what Paul said, that is a very fair explanation because we, as we've just discussed, there was so much information coming in, Paul. If you'd put that out then there in 98 or whatever and you get another million calls saying, I think it's my neighbour, I think it's my dog, I think it's my mm. milkman, um, they've all got to be filtered and, and, and worked through. So, I mean, that would have just maybe um, led detectives, finite amount of detectives down many different paths that they didn't really need to go down. Yeah. And I guess that also leads us to, you know, we a lot of listeners email us asking about Lance Williams. Were you still on the macro task force when uh, the focus shifted to the public servant? No, I'd left prior yeah. then, yes. Yeah. And, and Carl, it was obviously on your watch in 2008 that um, Lance Williams was basically cleared as a person of interest. So getting that information at that time, what was that like, given that we know such you know, um, intense scrutiny had been on this particular person? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a long time that uh, Lance was scrutinised by the task force. And uh, I guess when, it, when he was cleared, it sort of... Not only did it, uh, you know, lead it to a position where the prime suspect at the time was no longer a prime suspect, but it also left us in a situation where there was no other lead at that point in time. And I guess there was also, you know, um, such, uh, I guess, public exasperation as well to deal with. Yeah, there is that. Of course, there is this exasperation that because this person has been followed for so long and the media had an intense interest uh, in him as well, that all of a sudden the police force declared, look, this person uh, is not the person we're looking for. It changed the landscape quite significantly. Mm. Yeah. But round about the same time, Carl, and you might be able to give us some more detail on this, you get all the police officers get that DNA hit back from the UK, um, linking it forensically to um to the Karakata crime um were you were you briefed on that at, at the time as commissioner yes of course and, and that was also a step forward and uh, and uh, i think as paul pointed out in back in the 1990s forensic science at least with dna was in its infancy and it had gone a long way between that that time and the time that we got that particular hit back because of low copy dna capability Carl, can you shed any light on uh, the charges brought against Sarah Spears and why that wasn't until later? No, I can't tell you why that occurred uh, and I can't now tell you the, uh, the sequence around that. And there's been some um, speculation by people on this podcast, on Percy QC, um, saying that, you know, it, it's quite possible or probable that the state would appeal the not guilty verdict. Do either of you think that that's a likelihood? Um, well, I, I have no idea whether the DPP would appeal that or not at this stage. I think it's always going to be problematic without uh, a body. I think this case relied very much on forensic linkages and without those linkages, it becomes very complex. Uh, and as Paul's already pointed out, uh, Justice Hall thinks it is likely that Edwards did kill uh, Sarah Spears, but it's that that level of proof, that burden of proof that's required to get it there that's going to be problematic. Mm. Do you have any thoughts, Paul? Do, do you think it's something the state could pursue? Uh, no, I, I, I can't elaborate any more than what Carl raised there. Yeah. I concur entirely with him. All I could say is that, that I couldn't sleep at night if I, th if I thought that I'd convicted someone of a crime that they didn't commit. So uh, yeah. if a trial judge is, uh, after hearing all of the evidence from ex experts and everything else, uh, suspects but can't in all honesty yeah. uh, convict um, on, on, on his conscience, then I'd, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Do you feel it's enough for us now as a community to move forward? Um, well, no, no. Um, there is no conviction in relation to the uh, 
suspected death and, and, and to, to the death of Sarah Spears. So um, I, I would uh, I would suspect that Waypole will continue to um, make it every endeavour to keep in t- contact with Mr Edwards to see whether he is prepared to uh, to elaborate any further in relation to her death. And Carl, you know, from your position, or a position as a former commissioner uh, for so many years, do you think that uh, this is something that police will be working very, very hard on? I mean, we obviously heard from uh, Chris Dawson to say that this isn't an open investigation and they will not stop until... Um, the body of Sarah is discovered? Well, Chris Dawson's taken exactly the same view that I would have taken had I been the police commissioner, and that is that that case will always remain open, and I know that uh, Mr Edwards will be visited by detectives and there will be long conversations with him um, about the potential of him revealing the whereabouts of Sarah Spears if he knows, uh, and that's still to occur. When that will occur or how it will occur, I don't know, but it certainly was action that I would have taken if I'd still been the police commissioner. Yeah. Well, thank you both so very much for your time and Tim and I think you have managed to answer so many of the questions that we've had into this podcast from listeners um, and and you've managed to tick off on just about all of them. So thank you so very much for coming in and and, um, having this really almost final podcast with us. Thank you. No worries. Yeah, thanks for that. And uh, if I could just finish off with the one thing that I would ask that people uh, just bear in mind. It might be 24 years from the time that these crimes were committed to to uh, the conviction of Mr Edwards, but the evidence that was used to convict Mr Evidence of the two has taken 24 years or taken 18 years to get to that stage. Um, the commitment put in by the team hadn't changed from day one to the final day. It's the forensic evidence that is growing. Yeah, that's right. And just imagine what could happen down the track. Oh, it's just, as I said before, if I had my time over again (laughs) and I joined the police force, the first place I'd want to go to was the coal case unit to be able to pull some of those files out and and have the resources available to me that uh, we currently have would be just amazing. Yeah, I think this the, the verdict um, in this case after all these years probably does give many, many families some hope. Without a doubt. Thank you. And if you're interested in joining us, that's myself, Tim, Ali Fan and Kate Ryan will be hosting a special live event, the Claremont Podcast Live. Subscribers to the West Australian and Sunday Times are invited to join us for a special recording and you'll also have the opportunity to get a signed copy of Tim's book, Enigma of the Dark. Uh, you can book at thewest.com.au forward slash Claremont event or you can email us for some info and we'll get back to you. Well, that's it from us. Just a very short podcast tomorrow to fill you in on what happens next and answer your final questions if we haven't answered them today. So we hope you can join us then for Claremont in Conversation, The Verdict. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune into WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's Talkback Radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.